You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. This week, we're finally finishing John chapter 2. This is uh, message number 20 out of the first two chapters of John. So we haven't exactly hurried through it. But, um, while we've been going through, we've touched on some pretty um, solid subjects and pretty important topics. We've looked at the Word, at the incarnation of Christ. We've considered law and grace and the difference between them. Um, we've looked at what the Lamb of God means and the, uh, what it means for us. We've looked into the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it means to be a follower of Christ, had a look at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at uh, resurrection a few weeks or just recently, last week we looked at the afterlife. <coughs> Sorry. And uh, so there's some pretty solid stuff in John, and it's John is, I think as he said, very, rather the very beginning of this series through John. It's written in very simple words, simple phrases, uh, easy to understand but incredible depth contained in those simple words and I think uh, we've discovered that as we've been going through the unbelievable depth and we've only really scratched the surface, barely scratched the surface. But today we're at the last three verses, you can put them up thanks Adriana. And I'm asking you the question, what does it mean to believe in God? And does it really matter which God we believe in as long as we're sincere in that belief? Is it possible to believe in Jesus Christ and yet still be condemned to hell? That's a serious question. They're critical questions. Billions of people around the world believe in God of some description. So does that mean that billions of people are going to be in heaven whether they believe in Krishna or Allah or Buddha or Jehovah or even Mother Nature? Everyone to some extent, even, even atheists have a God of some description. For some the God is themselves, for some the God is science, for some the God is idols and Buddha and things like that. So everyone believes in a God of some description. Does that mean that as long as you believe you're going to end up in heaven? Over and over again we read in scripture of people who believed in Jesus, including in today's passage which is John chapter 2, 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So strap yourself in today. We're only looking at three verses to finish off John chapter 2, but it's going to be pretty heavy with other scriptures. Because this is a serious question. It's a serious question with eternal consequences. And if we get the answer wrong, 
they are eternally disastrous consequences. There were many people in Jesus' time who should have believed in him, but for various reasons, their own familiarity or their arrogance, uh, they chose not to believe in him. Matthew 13, we read, When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus' neighbours and his friends and his family were astonished by his wisdom and by his mighty works. They were blown away by it, we put it in modern terms. It was far beyond anything they had ever heard or seen from their regular teachers. And it would have been bad enough if they just ignored him, but that wasn't enough for them. They compounded their sin by taking offence at him. Truly a prophet is without honour except in his own hometown. In Mark we read, Then he came and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And Mark goes on to say a little bit further on, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It almost beggars belief. This man who had never done a thing wrong in his life, this man who spoke with such wisdom, this man who healed the sick and cast out demons and raised the dead, was, according to his own family, out of his mind. Even Mary seemed to get caught up in their scepticism. How easy it is for us to ignore and even reject the testimony and the evidence of other people and the evidence of things that we've seen and we've known. Truly familiarity breeds contempt. In John 7 we see his his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. His own brothers who grew up with him didn't believe in him. 
John 7, verse 3 to 5. Time and time again we see in scripture people who should have known better ignoring and rejecting him. Surely you would think his own brothers would have seen enough of his character when they were growing up to know that there was something special, something different about this man. Surely Mary would have told them something of his miraculous conception. But as John wrote back in chapter 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Friends, don't make that mistake when he comes to you. There are also many in scripture we see who you wouldn't expect to believe, but who did. Consider, for example, the Samaritan woman at the well. That's John chapter 4. After Jesus had talked to this woman for a little while, she left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Then a bit further on in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know indeed that this is the Saviour of the world. A couple of interesting things about this account. Samaritans, as I'm sure you know, were despised and hated by the Jews. The Jews considered them to be half-breed idolaters and would walk the long way around to avoid going through Samaritan country. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. It was the Jews that turned their back on the man. It was the Samaritan that actually helped him. The fact that Jesus, a Jew, would be speaking to a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman at that speaks profoundly of the type of man that Jesus was. But something else interesting to note in that story is that there were no miracles he performed. Many believed because of the woman's testimony and many more believed because of his, Jesus' words to them. Then of course there's the Roman centurion. You remember his story. The Romans as we know were generally hated by the Jews as well and the feeling was mutual. They had no time for the Jews either. They had a job to do to keep the place in order and enforce the law and order and peace and whatever else it may have been. But it was a Roman, an outsider, whose faith exceeded that of the Jews. Luke 7 again, it says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come in under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too, a man said under authority, Whose soldiers under me, who with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marvelled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel 
have I seen such faith. The lepers, the rejects, the outcasts, the poor, the despised, they were the people who seemed to put their trust in Jesus. The ones to whom he was sent, his own countrymen, rejected him. Everywhere Jesus went, he attracted huge crowds. People would push and shove to get through the crowd to get near him, to touch the hem of his garment in the hope that they would be healed. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, there were great crowds sitting on the hillside listening to him teach. When he fed the 5,000, they only counted the men. They didn't count the women and the children. That means there could have been eight, maybe 10,000 people sitting on that hillside being fed. When Jesus gets near the end of his earthly life, the crowds are so impressed with him they decide they want to crown him king. They spread out palm branches on the road in front of him, lay their cloaks down for him to walk on in an act of honour. They cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. There were thousands of them, maybe tens of thousands of them. And what do you think became of all these people? All of these people who seemed so impressed and so convinced that he was the coming king, he was the saviour of the world, what became of them? Almost without exception, they turned their back on him. And not only did they turn their back on him, they demanded his execution. Most of them had seen his miracles. Most of them, probably all of them, had heard his teaching. They'd witnessed his grace. I wonder how many of them had received a miracle themselves. How many of them had been the recipients of his grace. And yet they turned their back on him. And they wanted to kill him. This fulfills what the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's a stunning turnaround. From friend of sinners to enemy of the people in a few short weeks. What became of their belief? Their certainty that this was the man that was going to set them free. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So what is belief if it comes and goes with every shifting wind of circumstance, with every change in public opinion? Can that sort of believing, that sort of faith save you? We know that when they arrested Jesus and crucified him, he was abandoned by virtually everyone. Even Peter, the one who so confidently proclaimed, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. Even Peter denied him three times. If we go back to a few verses earlier in John chapter 2, we see a striking contrast. The first one is where Jesus has turned the water into wine. In verse 11, 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. These same disciples turned their back on him. They abandoned him when the chips were down. Then after Jesus cleanses the temple temple and speaks of his resurrection, again in John chapter 2, we see when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. After his crucifixion, they witnessed another miracle, his resurrection. And John tells us that they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Those who were here last week when I talked about the afterlife may recall I made a statement that miracles, while they can be helpful for belief, don't bring about saving faith. For saving faith, we need the word of God. That's precisely what we see in these couple of verses we've just looked at. Real, genuine saving faith must be founded on the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And Paul also tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For our faith to be real, genuine, saving faith, it must be founded on facts. It must be founded on truth. And it must be founded on scripture. If it's founded on miracles, even powerful miracles like people raised from the dead, it's on shaky ground. Matthew, Mark and Luke all report heaps of miracles in their Gospels. But interestingly, John tells us that he wrote his Gospel for the express purpose that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing have eternal life. And yet John only records a handful of miracles. I find that interesting. And it tells me something important, I think, about the relationship between miracles and saving faith tells me that witnessing miracles or even performing miracles doesn't guarantee saving faith. Miracles may open the door to faith but more is needed than faith because of miracles. In fact, I would go to so far as to say that chasing after miracles may be at best a sign of immature Christian faith. At worst, it's a sign of no genuine faith. Most of those, remember, who clamoured after Jesus witnessed and received miracles at his hand and they believed. It says over and over again, they believed, but they turned their back on him. Signs and wonders didn't produce widespread saving faith in Jesus' day when Jesus walked the earth. Why would we assume it is any different today. Faith that's based on miracles is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad place to start, but it's a terrible place to stop. If that's where your faith stays, you're in trouble. For if your faith doesn't grow beyond a dependency on signs and wonders, it won't last when things get tough, and things will get tough. 
I should probably point out here that I'm not a cessationist. I'm not one who thinks that miracles and signs and wonders don't exist anymore, that they stopped with the closing of the canon. I've personally received miracles myself. I've witnessed people receiving miracles. I've prayed for people who have received miracles. I know people whose word I trust, people of integrity, who are witnesses and experienced miracles themselves. So I believe that God still performs miracles in the 21st century. But if your faith is sustained by chasing after miracles, if it's sustained by going to the latest high-profile preachers' crusades, if it's sustained by the latest viral YouTube video of, of miracles happening somewhere, it's time to get beyond those things. It's time to base your faith on the Word of God and on the person of Jesus Christ. For even Pharaoh's men performed incredible miracles, the equal of anything that Moses and Aaron were doing at the time, for nearly all of those miracles. Simon the sorcerer was known for his great miracles and yet he wasn't a Christian. And then there were the ones to whom Jesus said those devastating words, Go away, I never knew you. They thought they were saved because they'd been performing miracles in Jesus' name. We need more than miracles to base our faith on. We need the historical foundation of the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need the solid rock of the word of God to base our faith on, if it's going to be genuine saving faith. John Piper says that our text today, John 2, 23-25, is unsettling because it tells us that Jesus knows the heart. He knows when your belief is not the kind of belief that is not genuine. He knows when it's not a faith that saves. What does non-genuine faith look like? I mentioned briefly last week the passage where Jesus tells the believers that he never knew them. So let's have a look at that and get a little bit of the context of it. Jesus, This is during the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is getting towards the end of it. He's beginning to wind it up. And as he gets towards the end of it, he talks about what's required for salvation. He starts to wind it up with a number of warnings. In Matthew 7.13 he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. He says in verse 15, beware of false prophets. He tells us in verse 19, every tree that does does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he concludes by saying, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then smack bang in the middle of those warnings, he tells us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's not a warning to be taken lightly. It tells us, I think in unmistakable terms, that saving faith is more than just intellectual faith. Intellectual faith is part of saving faith, but this must be more. For even the demons believe and tremble, James tells us. Friends, the demons know better than we do the reality of God. They have intellectual knowledge. They believe, but they're not saved. Saving faith requires relationship, not just knowledge. That's why Jesus said, I never knew you. When the Bible talks about knowing, it's usually talking about relationship, not knowledge. Genesis 4.1, you'll recall, tells us that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Adam didn't say, yeah, I met Eve earlier. It means that Adam and Eve had intimate relationship. So for all their apparent good works and miracles, the ones that Jesus rejected had no relationship with him. How about another example? How about the seven sons of Sceva? They were a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists who decided there would be a good community service to cast demons out of people. And the story would be hilarious if it wasn't so disturbing. But it tells us in Acts, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. These seven sons of Sceva were stripped naked and beaten to a pulp by one man full of demons that they were trying to cast out but they were trying to cast them out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They had no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They had heard about Jesus. They had heard that Paul preaches about Jesus and Paul's a pretty powerful guy. He's done plenty of miracles. He's cast out demons. He's healed people with just his shadow passing over them. So this Jesus whom Paul preaches, if we use that name, then we should be pretty good at casting out demons as well. They had intellectual knowledge about Jesus Christ, but they had no relationship. The name of Jesus is not a magic formula. There's no power in the mere words. The power and authority over demons comes from relationship. It comes from being a representative of Jesus Christ. It comes from being an ambassador where you are charged with the authority of Jesus Christ to deal with these things. So saving faith springs out of relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship 
the genuine saving relationship will be shown by our actions. It will be shown by our desire for holiness. It will be shown by our desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. It will be shown by our desire that he gets the glory, not us. There's something else I didn't mention in that uh, passage where Jesus said, I never knew you. Their response to Jesus is quite telling, I think. For they replied to him, look what I've done. Look at my miracles. Look at my good works. Straight away that tells me they were more interested in their own glory than in his. If their response had been, Lord, look what I am, but look what you've done, the story might have finished a different way. John Piper also says that real saving faith is a humble thing. It's what broken people do. It's not what power lovers do. It's not what popularity lovers do. It's not what signs and wonders lovers do. Piper goes on to warn us that many people today will run from one set of signs and wonders to the next. They crave the spectacular. They follow the latest sign worker until he leaves his wife or flies away on his private jet with all their money. Too often that happens to these people. Jesus warned us against this. He warned that there will be false Christs and false prophets performing great signs and wonders to lead people astray. And there will be real signs and wonders. Jesus didn't suggest that they will be fake. He said they'll be performing great signs and wonders. And they will cause many who believe to fall away. What kind of believing is it? that changes with every different circumstance. It's not a belief that saves, I can tell you that much. Saving faith requires more than just miracles. It needs more than just knowledge. Saving faith requires relationship. But saving faith, relational faith, is made evidence, made evident by our obedience the one who does the will of my Father, Jesus told those he didn't know, who didn't, he said he didn't know. The one who does the will of my Father will be the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. The one who hears these words of mine and does them will be the one whose house is secure on the rock. If you think you're safe because you believe in Jesus but you have no evidence of obedience in your life, if you have no desire for holiness, you're kidding yourself. If your faith is genuine, you will want to be, obey Jesus Christ. It will bother you that you still sin and fall short of the glory of God. And you'll welcome opportunities to do good to others. James tells us in chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Those that Jesus knew, uh, said he didn't know, may have responded that way, I have works. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. To answer some of my opening questions, yes, it is possible to believe in Jesus Christ and not be saved. We see that through the Gospels. We see it with Simon the sorcerer, in fact. says he believed. But then Peter told him his heart was full of sin and wicked. Yes, it does matter which God you believe in. Sincere faith is not the same thing as saving faith. For there is one God and there is one mediator and only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only faith that saves is faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in his ability to perform miracles, although he's well able to do that, but faith in his person and in his word. Faith in him alone. Jesus knows the difference between intellectual assent and saving faith. He knows the difference between belief and belief. You may fool us, but you won't fool him. He knows what is in your heart of hearts. He knows what is in man. That's good news for you though, if your faith is genuine. Jesus doesn't make his decision about you based on second-hand reports or based on the accusations of the devil. He knows what is in you. He knows when your heart is genuinely for him. He knows the struggles you have to be obedient to his word and to be consistent in your faith. And the good news also is that you don't have to struggle to be obedient. You don't have to work to impress God. You don't have to do good works as a ticket into heaven. But Jesus Christ has done that already on your behalf. He is the one who lived a life of perfect obedience. He not only did what was right at every instance, He didn't do what was wrong at any instance. It's what they call the the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ. He always did right and he never did wrong. And he has done that on behalf of every person who would put their trust in him. So your acceptance before the Father is based on the perfect life and perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He is the one who satisfied the demands of God for holiness 
And he is the one who offered up his life to pay the penalty for your disobedience and for my disobedience. If you'll put your trust in him and in him alone, he will change your heart from the heart of a rebel to the heart of a son or a daughter. That is good news. And he will give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to live a life that shows evidence of saving faith. As imperfectly as you or I may obey him, we will be doing it out of relationship. We will be doing it as a friend, not as a servant. And we'll never need to fear hearing Jesus say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. If you've never done that before, I'd like to invite you to make that decision to do it now. Can I ask everyone to just close their eyes for a few moments? We'll have um, communion in a few minutes after this. But now, with your eyes closed, if you haven't done that before, or maybe you've been um, wandering a little bit in your faith, I invite you to make a decision now. Lord, today I give you my life. Today I ask you to change me from within. Jesus, I want to turn from my sin. I want to know you and to follow you and to obey you. Lord, I don't want to be one of those that you tell I never knew you. I ask you, Lord, to do whatever work you need to in me to make sure I'm not one of those. Thank you, Lord, that you impart the faith to us that we need to be saved that we don't have to work it up ourselves Lord because if it was up to us to get to a certain level of faith we could never make it Jesus you live that life and you impart your righteousness to those who put your trust in you, their trust in you thank you that you've done that Lord we thank you that that we are called by your name now. That we live in relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.